0: I want us to turn our attention this morning to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Verses 1 to 20. I want you to follow along, please, as I read, and then we'll study this text together. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Halloween is quickly approaching in just a matter of weeks. It is estimated that this year will be the year that we break the record for the amount of money that Americans spend on Halloween. It's estimated that $12.2 billion will be spent this year as people observe Halloween. Now, as a candy lover... I can understand maybe something like 6 billion, I love Butterfingers, but 12.2 billion seems a little extreme, doesn't it? These numbers have actually been steadily climbing with one year, the year of COVID 2020, having a little dip. But these numbers have been steadily climbing year after year as Americans spend more and more of their resources on Halloween. I think that what these factors tell us, aside from the fact that dental care is a safe occupation to pursue, I think that what these numbers tell us is that there is a growing interest and intrigue in evil. In fact, in supernatural evil. You think about for instance the amount of money and time that Hollywood pours into the horror film genre. And I'm not here to condemn you if you enjoy horror films. That's not the point of all of this. The point that I am making here, the point that we see as we observe these trends, is that people are increasingly interested in evil. One of the reasons that the Bible is so helpful to us is that it gives us the ability to take things like that and to analyze them from a clear and sound perspective. The Bible helps us to make sure that we don't overemphasize evil and for instance, look for a demon hiding behind every corner, just waiting to pounce on you and take you. But the Bible also makes sure that we don't underemphasize evil. And think, for instance, that stories like this one in Mark chapter five are just old folk tales, things that used to happen. But now that we have scientific evidence. We don't really see these types of things anymore. Rather, the Bible helps us to strike a clear and thoughtful understanding of not only the world's interest in evil, but the presence of evil itself. In John chapter 3, John tells his readers there about how to understand who really the whole world belongs to. One One of two fathers, John explains it. In John chapter three, verse ten, he says, "By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother And then, in John chapter five, verse nineteen, in speaking to Christians, John says Excuse me, John says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Christians now belong to God, John explains, and the whole rest of humanity is under the grip of the evil one. His main goal, the evil one, Satan, his main goal is not to scare you and certainly not to entertain you through scary mediums, but his main goal is to snatch souls away from God. It's even more sinister. It's even more evil than giving you a good scare and making you afraid to turn the lights out at night. Instead, it is to blind the eyes of those who do not know God so that they cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's to keep them from understanding who Jesus is. In John chapter 10, Jesus explained that Satan came only to steal And to kill and destroy, but that he, Jesus, came so that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus explained, Jesus came rather, so that we would be transferred out of the family of Satan and adopted into a new family with a new father, God himself. Jesus came to deliver you from the torturous imprisonment of that cruel deceiver so that you and I would now be free to live the way that God made us to live, to live in obedience to his will. Jesus came as the good shepherd with a heart full of compassion who laid down his life for his people so that they would have eternal life. Jesus is the only one who can deliver you from the grip of Satan. You may not be possessed like this man in Mark chapter 5, but the Bible makes it clear that everyone who does not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the possession of Satan. And he means to do you only harm while Jesus Christ came to do you only good. He is the only one who can deliver you from the grip of Satan. He is the only one who can completely transform you. He is the only one who can put you on a mission to tell others about all that he has done for you in his great mercy. That is what we see in Mark chapter 5 this morning. The demon-possessed man and his deliverance by Jesus teach us some valuable lessons about spiritual warfare. It's true that not all who are, the children, who are children of the devil are possessed by demons like this man, but all are the possession of Satan, and Jesus alone can set them free. As we see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, it's a reminder to us of the amazing grace that transforms sinners like us. The Bible makes it clear that we Christians used to belong to another, but now we belong to God. And as we see Jesus encounter this demon-possessed man who is filled with not one, but a whole legion of demons, we see that the reality is evil exists, but evil is no match for the power of Jesus Christ. So I want you to follow along then with me as we work our way through this passage, and I want to point out to you four lessons, four lessons on spiritual warfare that give us confidence to preach the gospel. Four lessons on spiritual warfare that give us confidence to preach the gospel. The first lesson is this, there is nothing that man can do to set himself free from the grip of Satan. There is nothing that humanity, mankind, can do to set himself free from the grip of Satan. In these first five verses, Mark wants us to pay particular attention to something. First, he tells us about Jesus' coming to this Area. It was a Gentile area. The, just the night before, Jesus and the disciples had been on the boat. And it's a story you're probably familiar with. They're on the boat. Jesus had been teaching all day long. He's dead tired, and he falls asleep in the back of the boat in the middle of a storm. The disciples freak out, and they ask him, "'Teacher, don't you care that we're dying?' And Jesus wakes up, perhaps he wipes the sleep from his eyes. And instead of directly addressing the disciples and trying to comfort them in their fear, he simply speaks to the wind and to the waves and it stops like that. And this prompts the question that you see at the end of chapter 4, just look up one verse, chapter 4, verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. You see, the disciples had been following Jesus and they knew some things about him. They knew he was special, they knew he was significant, they knew he was not like everybody else that they had met before, but they still didn't quite know who he was. And then they see him having the ability to speak to a storm and it stopped like that to a raging sea and it becomes glass. And they ask themselves, who in the world is this guy? And then Mark sets out to answer that question by turning to a series of miracles, the first of which is this one. Where Mark wants to make it clear, Jesus is the one who can set the captive free. So notice what Mark is doing. He says in verse 1, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. They're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee now. They step off the boat, verse 2 says, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs. A man with an unclean spirit. If you've ever studied the gospel of Mark before, you know Mark loves action. He keeps the story moving. One of his favorite words is the word immediately. He wants you to understand that to follow Jesus is action. You're always going. Because Jesus had a mission. So Mark puts the camera on Jesus and his disciples and they step out of the boat and Mark wants you to understand that just as soon as Jesus' foot hit the ground, this man approached him. But he was no ordinary man. Look at the way that Mark describes the man. He wants you to know and to understand the awful condition that this man was in. And he wants you to know that despite this country's best attempt, no one could do anything about it. We learn a few important things about the man. First of all, he came from out of the tombs and he had an unclean spirit. I think we would all agree, no one in their right mind lives in the cemetery, right? Nobody makes their home in the cemetery and thinks like, oh, just spread out here in the cemetery. It's a pretty great place. Especially in these tombs, this was not Israel anymore. This was Gentile land, the city, the region of the Decapolis, the 10 cities. It was where Gentiles lived and worked and Gentiles didn't have the same burial rites that Jews did. Most likely, what, where this man lived was inside of a cave, probably set amongst other caves, where when family members or friends would die, maybe they would wrap them up, but they would carry their bodies, they would stick it inside of this cave, and they would let it rot. And that's where the man lived. He lived in a terrible place. He was afflicted by an unclean spirit, Mark tells us. And he says in verse 3, No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he rents the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces No one had the strength to subdue him. Do you hear that? No one, no one, no one, no one could do anything about it. They tried to chain him up. It was the best that they could do for this, I don't mean this to to cut the man down, but for this raving lunatic. The best they could do was to try to chain him up, but every single time they did, he just broke him apart. Unimaginable strength, unimaginable power, instead of binding him, because they realized it didn't work anymore, nothing they ever tried worked, they sent him out into live in the land of the dead. Not only that, but then verse 5 says, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Night and and day, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Just just try to picture what this man would have looked like. He's crying out night and day, and it wasn't like a, a sweet little baby's cry. It was a torturous scream. And not only is he screaming constantly, no doubt the villagers can hear him but he's taking sharp rocks and he's cutting himself over and over and over again. And Mark doesn't tell us why he was cutting himself. Perhaps the man had a little bit of clarity. Perhaps the demons allowed him to have a little bit of clarity and he thought, if I could just, if I could just open myself up, they would leave. So you see this man... Scabbed, scarred, bleeding, screaming. And that's what Jesus walks into. And Mark wants to make it crystal clear that nobody in that town, nobody in that whole country could do a single thing about it. This gives us a picture, my friends, not just of the the evil that Satan was inflicting in Jesus' day on people who were created in the image of God, but it gives us a picture of our own spiritual depravity. No one could do anything for this man to help him, and the truth is, no one can do anything for anyone who is under the control of Satan. You're probably familiar with Ephesians chapter 2 and the explanation there that Paul gives us of our lives before faith in Jesus Christ. He says things like we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He tells us that we were sons of disobedience. He says that we lived in the passions of our flesh and we carried out the desires of the body and mind. He says that we were by nature children of wrath. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19, that we had futile minds. Our, Our minds didn't work properly to understand the things of God. He tells us that we were darkened in our understanding. He tells us we were alienated from the life of God due to the ignorance that our hard hearts created in us. He says that we were callous, that we were given to sensuality. He says that we were greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And yet, not a single one of us could do anything about it. You see, the... the, External picture of this man's circumstance is an ugly one, isn't it? But the truth is the internal picture of the sinner is even worse. But I want you to understand this morning that in light of the ugliness that our sin creates, there's good news. There's good news. While No one can free themselves to set themselves free from the grip of Satan. The second reality, the second lesson that I want you to understand about spiritual warfare is that there is no one under the grip of Satan whom Jesus cannot set free. There's nothing that man can do to set himself free from the grip of Satan, but the good news is that there is no one under the grip of Satan whom Jesus cannot set free. Verse 6 says and when he saw Jesus from afar he ran and he fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice he said what have you to do with me Jesus son of the most high god i adjure you by god do not torment me You'll notice as we move our way through the passage that it switch back and it switches back and forth between referring to the man with the unclean spirit as he and sometimes it seems like he's talking to Jesus and then it will switch to the demon himself talking to Jesus so that it's not really totally clear who it is that's engaging with Jesus. And that's intentional because Mark wants to show us the havoc that Satan is wreaking in this man's life so that he can show us the reality that it is no match for Jesus in his power. So the demon recognizes him. Perhaps it's the man who recognizes Jesus. He runs to him. He falls down before him. And he cries out to him, essentially, what do you want with me, Jesus? What are you doing here, Jesus? This is my territory, Jesus. And you'll notice that he even recognizes the identity of Jesus. He knows who he is. He calls him the son of the most high God. All throughout the Gospels, you'll notice a theme, especially in Mark's Gospel, that it's, it's the demons who recognize, recognize the identity of Jesus before human beings recognize the identity of Jesus. Jesus. So he knows who Jesus is. He falls down before him. And in fact, he not, just knows, he not only knows who Jesus is, but he knows what Jesus will ultimately one day do. He begs him. In fact, it's really a command. Some, some translations say, translate this as, Swear to God that you will not torment me. A demon is invoking the name of God to the Son of God to beg for mercy from him. You see what Mark's doing? Mark is wanting to make it crystal clear. This this demon, no matter how many of them, is simply no match for Jesus. What does a demon have to do before the creator of all things? Bow down. What can a demon do apart from the permission of Jesus? Bow down. That's it. So he begs him not to torment him. He knows that one day Jesus will come and he will cast Satan and the demons into the lake of fire and he's essentially begging him for more time. Don't do it yet. Jesus, I know what you're coming to do. I know what your mission is, but I'm asking that you wouldn't do it yet. And verse 8 explains why he asked the question. He was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then in verse 9, Jesus has a conversation with him. He engages him. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Perhaps it really was the demon's name. Maybe his name really was Legion. But a legion was a military unit within the Roman Empire. And it could have up to as many as 6,000 soldiers in a legion. So the point is not so much that the demon's name is Legion, though it very well could be. The point is that there are many inside of this man. And they've been wreaking their havoc for a long time. And verse 10 says, again, he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. He recognizes the power of Jesus. He submits to Jesus. He begs Jesus not to send him out of the country. And instead, he sees an opportunity. He looks over and he sees a great herd of pigs that was feeding there on the hillside. And you'll notice how verse 12 switches it back to, not from he, but they, they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And clean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Jesus came to deliver this man. The demons don't want to go. They do their best to put up a fight. And then they try to bargain with Jesus. They say, don't send us out of the country. Instead, send us into those pigs. And for whatever reason, Jesus gives them permission to go into the pigs. Mark doesn't explain why he does that. He just did it. They go into this herd of pigs that was about 2,000 pigs. I don't really know in my mind how to quantify what it looks like to see 2,000 pigs. But that's a lot of pigs, isn't it? I mean, you could eat bacon the rest of your life on that number of pigs. There were enough demons inside of this man to go into the pigs and to inflict their torturous punishment on the pigs themselves. They go into the pigs, they rush the pigs into the sea, and they drown the pigs in the sea. The town had tried to bind this man with chains, but it didn't work. Nothing that they did worked for this man. And then Jesus showed up. And he simply told the demons what to do and they were forced to obey him because his power is greater. I think that's an illustration that teaches us that there are no external constraints that the sinner can put on to fix Our greatest problem. There's no medication you can take to fix your greatest problem. There's no amount of exercise you can get or sunshine to your skin that can fix your greatest problem. The solution for the greatest problem of humanity is not external, but it's internal. And the only one who can bring that to us is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who deals with that internal need. As Mark continues to paint this picture, what he wants us to understand is that mankind might be left without hope apart from Jesus Christ, but in Jesus Christ lies the one and only hope for all mankind. I don't know what situation you're in this morning. I don't know what condition you've come here in. I don't know what it is that you feel like won't leave you alone in life. I don't know whether that's a demonic thing or simply a flesh thing. But what I do know, my friend, is that the only one who can set you free from that burden you carry is Jesus Christ. You see, this one who can command the forces of evil and they must obey him, this is the very one who laid down his life. This is the very one, as as we just saw, who took on himself, on the cross the full weight of sin for his people who bore the father's punishment, the father's wrath against us. This is the very one who three days later rose from the grave to show that he is the one and only conqueror. He doesn't just tell demons to go away. He is the solution for our sin problem. I don't know what it is that you feel like won't let go of you, but I can tell you this. Jesus and Jesus alone can set you free. But as Mark continues to tell the story, he brings us then to a third principle. He brings us to a third principle of spiritual warfare, and it's this. Some will remain in bondage. There's no one under the grip of Satan whom Jesus cannot set free, but some will remain in their bondage. Notice with me in verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. They fled because they had no more jobs anymore. Instant unemployment. Your herd has just gone into the sea and drowned, and you've got nothing to do anymore. And so they go back to the city and throughout all of the country, and they tell people... And people came to see what it was that happened. And when they came to Jesus, verse 15 says, And they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed, and in his right mind they were afraid. Isn't that a funny response? They were afraid? Have you ever been afraid of someone who's sitting down Wearing all of their clothing and in their right mind? I'm gonna guess no. And yet they were afraid. What's going on here? What was it that they were afraid of? They weren't afraid of the man who was once insane and now sane they were afraid of a greater power than they had ever seen before. They weren't quite sure what to do with Jesus. And in fact, it's it's thought that most likely this area on the Sea of Galilee with its herd of 2,000 pigs would have been one of the major supplies of meat to the Roman Empire, to the Roman soldiers in that area of Israel. So you take 2,000 pigs and you drop them into the sea and pigs can't swim because their arms are short. They can't swim, they drown. And all of a sudden you've gutted the economy of this country. What are the people supposed to do now? You see, they were thinking about all the circumstances of their life. What are we supposed to do now? And rather than recognize that This man was once crazy. We couldn't do anything to bind this man. And now he's sitting here, he's wearing his clothes, and he's in his right mind, and he's sitting next to this other man whom we've heard about named Jesus. And they decide that rather than engage Jesus to try to figure out what it is that this greater power is, what's going on, what message does he have to say, rather than engage Jesus, they decide that their business was more important than Jesus. And verse 16 says, And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. There's already been some begging. The demon begged Jesus not to send him out of the country. And now this man is clothed in his right mind. And the people, the townspeople come to see what's going on. And they hear the story of what happens. They see that the pigs are gone. They see that it's all because of Jesus. And rather than saying, welcome to our town, they beg him to get lost. That's a picture, isn't it, of the sinful condition of mankind. You probably have experienced people similar to these townspeople. Maybe you've never seen a bunch of pigs destroyed and you you don't have any testimony like that. But after you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, was every single person in your life happy about that? Did you lose any family member or friends because of your new faith in Jesus Christ? Did it disrupt some of your relationships because you now had a new purpose in life? Why does that happen? Why can't they see the sanity that Jesus Christ has brought to your life? Now, you may struggle just like I do still, but there's no doubt when the saving grace of God touches your heart, when he gives you a new heart, you're saved, you're different, you're new, right? Why doesn't everybody celebrate that? It's because they are still blinded to seeing the truth of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. It's because they don't understand, just like you and I once didn't understand until God himself opened our eyes, until Jesus himself set us free from the chains that once bound us. And so I don't really know why the pigs were destroyed and and why all of that happened, but I think it teaches us something. I think it teaches us that the reality of life in a fallen world is such that even when you are saved, hard things still happen. It can be tempting to look at stories like we read in the Gospels, Stories of great deliverance. And to just think like, wow, if if Jesus would just show up like that for me, then all my problems would be gone. This man was delivered and the pigs were killed. God's grace shed in this man's heart and yet this whole town's economy was gone in a moment. And they were left to deal with that. You see, we live in the in-between time. Jesus has come once and he will come again one day in power and glory and he will reign and he will rule and he will wipe away every tear from our eye. But the reality is that if the tears need to be wiped away, the tears are present. So the grace of God works in our hearts and it saves us and it transforms us. But the truth is we still live in a fallen world where awful things happen. And God gives us this hope, this hope that what has happened inside of me, this this new creation that I have become in Christ will one day extend to everything that I will ever see. He is making all things new, right? We need that reminder. We need to know that the grace of God is, is working, he's saving, he's building his church, but the reality is life is hard because life is under the grip of the evil one. The effects of the fall are still felt and Satan is still wreaking his havoc because he knows the clock is ticking. And so our third spiritual lesson, or our third lesson on Spiritual warfare is that even though there's no one under the grip of Satan whom Jesus cannot set free, there are some who will still remain in their bondage. Rather than begging Jesus for salvation, they will beg Jesus to get lost. But then the fourth lesson while some remain in bondage, number four, others are set free to preach about the Lord's mercy. Others are set free to preach about the Lord's mercy. You notice the attention sort of went off of the man whom Jesus had healed, though Mark was making it crystal clear he used to be possessed by a demon. He used to have a legion. And then in verse 18, the camera pans back to the man. The people beg Jesus to leave, and Jesus apparently agrees. Verse 18 says, as he was getting into the boat... The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. I think that's what I would have done. I think that's what you would have done, right? If you were insane, if you had been cutting yourself night and day, screaming at the top of your lungs, living in a tomb with dead people's bones, probably eating the food that they left for their dead ancestors... And all of a sudden, you were clothed and you were in your right mind, and you knew that it was Jesus who did that, you too would have begged Him, Lord, just let me go. I don't even have to say anything. I'll be the guy that throws away the trash after you're done eating. I just wanna be with you. Please let me go be with you. And yet, notice Jesus' response to in verse 19. And he did not permit him. What? He didn't permit him? He's begging Jesus, please let me go with you. And yet Jesus says, no. You know why Jesus didn't permit him to go? Because Jesus had a different role for this man to play. If Jesus was asked to leave this region, that means the preaching of the gospel was no longer going to be in this region. And so Jesus has a better job. He says to him, go home. Go home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you." Jesus has saved this man, he's transformed this man, and now he commissions this man as the first missionary in the gospel of Mark. Go home and tell everybody what the Lord's done for you. This is the first time in the ministry of Jesus that he's ever told someone to speak about what he's done. So far, he's been crystal clear and strongly emphatic that everyone was supposed to stay quiet about what he was doing. Because the popularity of Jesus was was so strong, his, his renown was so clear that he couldn't go anywhere without being swarmed by a mob. And so Jesus, when he would heal someone, would say, don't say anything about this to anyone so that he could continue preaching the gospel. But now, this time, Jesus heals this man. He restores his right mind. The townspeople kick Jesus out. Even though he's got the power to say no to them, you'll notice they didn't come with their pitchforks. They had to beg him to leave. And Jesus says, okay. But rather than taking the gospel witness with him, Jesus sends this transformed man Back to his home. And the ESV says, go to your home, to your friend. Go home to your friends. But it literally says, go home to those who are yours. Which is more than just his friends, isn't it? Jesus is telling this man, go to the people that you call your people. I think it could be easy to jump in on a story like this and completely forget that this man had a family. This man once lived in a home with that family. This man had neighbors. This man once lost his first tooth. This man used to celebrate his birthdays in his town. And people would have celebrated with him. And now all of a sudden he's lost his mind and his own people said, get out of here. Go live in the cemetery. We don't want you here. You're out of your mind. Jesus transforms him. And then Jesus says to him, go back to your home. Tell your people everything that the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And how does the man respond? He went away. And he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You notice Jesus told him, go tell people what the Lord did for you. And Mark makes it crystal clear. He went and told people what Jesus did for him because he knew when God opened his eyes, he knew that Jesus is the Lord. That the compassionate God that we read about in the Old Testament has now come to us in the flesh to dwell amongst us, to save us, to save a people, to gather a people, to send a people out, to proclaim the mercies of God so that those people would go to other people, people they know and people they don't know, and say, listen, I've got to tell you about what Jesus has done for me. You see, this is not just a story of the power of Jesus to break the chains of Satan. This is the story that you and I live in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our story. I wasn't possessed by demons, praise God, but I was dead in my sin. My life looked like a wreck. And I loved things that only brought me destruction until Jesus delivered me. And he opened my eyes. And I could see that the things that I once enjoyed were empty and meaningless. And they might have brought me temporary satisfaction, but they don't satisfy my soul the way that Jesus does. He helped me to see that I was chasing after something that only he can bring to me. So we've seen the power of Jesus over Satan to deliver the captive, to transform the captive, to send the captive out on mission, to preach to others about the mercies of God. But then we've also seen the different responses to that power. Some, the townspeople, begged Jesus to go away. In response to his power, they said to him, we like our lives the way that they are, Jesus. You can leave. But the man who had been transformed begged that he would be able to be with Jesus. So then let me ask you this morning, my friend, which of those responses best fits you? Are you like the townspeople who like your life the way it is, and you don't want Jesus changing anything? You think that you've built this this life that you have and and, and you know you're still working on it a little bit. There's maybe some things that you'd like to change, but overall you'd rather do it yourself than submit to Jesus. Or are you like the man who had been transformed and said, my life is all about Jesus now. Lord, let me be with you wherever I go. You'll notice two characteristics after the man had been transformed by Jesus. Number one, he was desperate to be with Jesus. And number two, he obeyed the command of Jesus to go and tell people about his mercy. So can you picture it? This man who was once probably naked, scarred, bloody, screaming like a wild animal, restored, clothed, in his right mind, and he walks back into town. And everybody knows him. They remember who he is. They used to hear, even the night before, his screams coming from the cemetery. And now he's back. He's back to be with his friends again, to live with his family again, to hug the people whom he loves again. And as he walks back into town, you can can just hear the people greeting him. Welcome back. We've missed you. What happened to you? And with a big smile on his face, the man just says, my life was a total mess, but then I met Jesus. You see, my friends, this is what Jesus does. He is the one who sets you